Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you again. And a special welcome to those who've come up, especially uh, today instead of last night. I'm going to pray that God would help us understand his word. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can be here as a community. Thank you for this church family and how they seek to submit every aspect of their lives to the lordship of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray now that you would help us to apply your word and understand it by the power of your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So last night we started asking the question, what does love look like? And we remember that love can be warm and welcoming and wonderful. But love can also be superficial, empty, easy. We also saw that love is a desire to draw near to another through service. Love is more than just service, because politicians serve, employees serve, but what distinguishes love is that the service is in order to draw near to someone. And we apply that specifically to reconciliation. Now, I know that yesterday um, is very personal for a lot of people when we think about what God's Word has to say. But today we're going to think about another personal topic, one that is a bit more, shall we say, touchy. We're going to be talking about money, and we're going to be talking about giving. And what I hope you see is, just like last night, where the basis of reconciliation, the heart of reconciliation, is seen ultimately in how God has reconciled us to himself in Jesus Christ. The basis of giving, at least from the Christian New Testament, is to see how God has graciously and abundantly made us rich in Jesus Christ. And so, what does love look like? Let's take a look now at the heart of giving. Come with me to point one, please. Here we are, point one, the grace of giving. And we're at part A. I understand that you've been going through 1 Corinthians and a series known as Messy Church uh, recently. And so you know a bit about the Corinthian church. This was a whiz-bang of a church, right? These were people who had amazing spiritual gifts. These were people who uh, had a love and a faith in Jesus Christ. If you read chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, you go, wow, these people are, are, are exemplars in their faith. And yet, they were also very messy. They were very messed up. You've got, uh, you know, infighting between Christians. You've got sexual immorality in the church. You've got people who are saying, look, I don't care what your conscience says. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And you've got people who are flaunting their spirituality. This was a messy church. And yet, what we see in 1 Corinthians is that Paul never ceased calling them a church, which shows that even in the darkest of situations, in the midst of of all this muck and grime, God's people are still God's people. And here in 2 Corinthians, we see that God's grace is continuing to be proclaimed by Paul to this people. And here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, there is a very specific scenario that Paul is addressing. So would you read with me from verse 6, please? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6. So we urge Titus, uh, Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, 
in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you. See that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Wow. I don't know if you caught that. In verse 6, Paul writes to the Corinthians about how they previously promised Titus that they were going to give some money because at the time, the church in Jerusalem was going through a famine. Uh, There was a famine in the land, and so there were many Christians who were starving. They were in poverty. They were unable to provide for themselves. And what had happened was that the Corinthians had earlier said, we're going to give to this. We want to give to support our sisters and brothers in Christ. And in verse 7, he calls on them to follow through with their pledge to give out of grace or to excel in this grace of giving. And then in verse 8, he clarifies that this call to excel in giving is not a command. He's just testing whether they really love Jesus or not. Can you imagine if uh, Pete's got up on Sunday next, next week and said, hey, everyone, I want you to give. I'm not commanding you. I'm just testing whether your faith is sincere or not. It wouldn't be wrong. It's in the scriptures, right? So I'm going to say, Pete, if you're going to do that, that's fine, right? Just keep it in context, though. But that's what Paul says. He says to them, I'm testing whether your love is sincere or not. Are you going to follow through? Are you going to give? Is your love empty, meaningless, and superficial? Or are you going to follow through and give as you said you would give? Southwest Evangelical Church, let me ask you, as Paul asks in verse 7, if you want to be a church that excels in faith, in knowledge, in love, are you going to be a church that excels in giving as well? How do you measure up to this test? But you see, Paul doesn't just give us a test. He actually gives the model, the model of generous, self-sacrificial giving. And we see that in point B. This is the heart of the passage. Read read with me, please, from verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became flesh for us. He incarnated himself. He was rich in glory, in status, in power, and in fellowship with the Father. And yet, because of love, he took on flesh. He didn't become poor in the sense that he was no longer God, but he became poor because he came down as one of us. He clothed himself in humanity, became the son of a carpenter and a teenage wife. He became poor and he lived in poverty, but he died for our sake. And he was raised to life that we would have new life as well. This is the gospel message, the message of Jesus, that through his poverty, we would become rich, rich with love and redemption, rich with adoption and forgiveness, rich 
by being sealed with the Holy Spirit and drawn near to God. Christian, if you're here today and you call yourself a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are abundantly rich in Jesus Christ. You are more rich than you could possibly imagine. You are rich. And Jesus did it out of love. He did it to draw us near to himself by serving us. It's possible that there are some people here who have been attendees of this church for many years, but have never received the grace of Jesus Christ himself for yourself. Uh, Let me put it another way. It's possible that there are people here who have claimed to know Jesus for years, but the only time you've ever thought about giving yourself and sacrificing for others is only when it was easy for you or only when you thought you would get something out of it. That's not sacrifice. And that's not love. Have you only given your time and your money and your resources when it was beneficial for you? Yeah, I got nothing on that weekend. I can serve in that way. Oh, yes, I'll give to that cause just because we've had three spots at church about it the last three weeks. Yeah, sure, I think I'll do it. Otherwise... What will the minister think of me? What will the leaders think of me? Yes, I will give to that. Well, according to Paul, if this is you, then the sincerity of your love might be a complete falsehood. You might have pretended for years to care for others, to claim you have a heart for the lost. But in reality, your love is empty, is meaningless, is superficial. Additionally, there are some here who... When finances are, are tight, especially as university students, you might say, you know what, I don't have a lot of money as it is, James, so thank you for this sermon, but this will be applicable for me in four years. Well, some of you have part-time jobs. And so even for those who are university students or those of you who are already working full-time, let me ask you, when finances become tight or maybe there is an unexpected change in your circumstances, is the first thing you sacrifice giving to the local church? is the first thing you sacrifice giving to brothers and sisters before spending on yourself. Do you maintain the same amount that you spend on yourselves, on enjoying God's good creation, and the amount you spend when you go out with your friends, but you make cuts to the amount you give to others? Friends, that's not love. That's not sacrifice. Because you're reducing how much you give to others before you're reducing the amount you give to yourself. You see, in reality, our hearts are not like Christ's heart, the one who became poor that we would become rich. Our hearts are sinful. They're filled with idolatrous rebellion. We want to keep things for ourselves. We want to spend things on what we think is expected and normal and will make us happy. But as we see here, as Paul shows us in verse 9, the Corinthian Christians know the grace of Jesus, and so do we. We know the extravagant sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And as followers of Jesus, we must do likewise. Not because we want to earn God's love, but because we have already received it. Because we are rich. Because Jesus was made poor. But let's see what this looks like in action. Part C. The example. You see, Paul gives the Corinthians an example. He doesn't just tell them what to do. He says, here's an example. And he points to the Macedonian Christians. Now, uh, just a bit of trivia, right? Uh, The Macedonian Christians were the first Christians from Europe. They were the first Christian converts from Europe. 
and uh, you can read about it <clears throat> sometime in Acts chapter 16. Um, the Macedonian Christians included the Philippian Christians. So if you ever read the book of Philippians, you're reading about the Macedonian Christians. And Paul here points to the Macedonians as an example. And what an example they are. Uh, take a look at some of these verses, okay? So in verse 2, Paul says that the Macedonians gave in the midst of suffering. They didn't just give when everything was going well, they gave while they were suffering. And in verse 2, he also says that they gave as an expression of overflowing joy. They were joyful in their giving. In verse 3, they gave beyond their means. They gave even more than they had. And in verse 4, they urgently pleaded to be allowed to give. They wanted the privilege of serving these Jerusalem Christians. In verse 5, they gave beyond what was expected. But also, and this is really important for us as we think about this topic of giving, verse 5, the Macedonian Christians gave themselves first to God and then to people. Did you catch that? They gave themselves first to God and then to people. Because you see, that is where we need to start. See, giving doesn't make you a Christian, but giving is one of the marks of being a Christian. We are to give ourselves first to God, and then we can give ourselves to others. The action doesn't make you a Christian. It didn't come out of an, ab of an abundance for the Macedonians. It came out of poverty. This was generosity. And it doesn't make any sense, does it? In our world, it doesn't make sense to give when you don't have enough. It doesn't make sense to give when you're suffering. It doesn't make sense to give joyfully when you're parting ways with a lot of money. None of it makes sense if we're going to look at this passage with worldly eyes. And so, let me ask you, as young adults, what does sacrifice look like for you? Are you worldly in your conception of giving? Have you bought into the way in which our culture thinks about giving? My parents aren't Christians, and um, I remember the first time my dad found out that I give to church. He was livid. I remember one time, uh, the, the context was, there have been some door knockers at our church um, are coming to our house, and my dad sort of slammed the door, and then later that night at dinner, my dad was saying, you know, James, you're not one of these door knockers, right? You're not one of these people that goes around telling people about Jesus, and I was like, no, I am. And he said, what? You're not one of these people that gives to church, do you? And I went, yeah, I am. And he was so angry with me. How much are you giving a week? And at the time I was a university student and he was so upset with me. He really was. Because for him, it didn't make any sense to give to what was essentially a club, a recreational activity, a charity even when I was a university student. But what does sacrifice look like for us? Well, without condemning or condoning any of these acts, can I just put forward a few ways that in a Western, liberal democracy like we are here in Sydney, sacrifice could be seen? And can I just say right now that even as I read these, I feel embarrassed when I think about the ways that Christians have sacrificed throughout history. Consider these possible ways that you could sacrifice to give more. Could you eat less meat? 
could you choose to send your children to public schools instead of private schools? Could you choose to never get a mortgage and rent for the rest of your life? Why does every child of yours need their own bedroom? Could you maybe have a family and put three kids in one room? Could you holiday in Australia rather than overseas? Could you drink more water instead of soft drinks and alcohol? I feel embarrassed to read that kind of list because it tugs on us, doesn't it? Some of those things, they tug on us. And yet, they're so superficial. But if you think about it, every single one of these things costs a lot of money. And yet, sacrifice for us could look like, it doesn't have to, it could look like giving up some of that. What does it say about us that as Christians who have lived with over 2,000 uh, with 2,000 years of history, where there have been Christians who still to this day live in poverty, that we could not even fathom the idea of maybe eating a bit less meat? But sacrifice from the Macedonians, we see here a great example. And I do want to say about houses, because we are young adults, that if you do choose to give every single child of yours their own bedroom, and you want a mortgage, the next 30 years of your life will look very different. Very different. If you want to be flexible and be able to move and serve God with the gospel, and you choose to go down that cultural assumption, you will be very, very burdened and unflexible in your ability to move. None of these things are essentials. But, sit, uh, but Southwest Evangelical Church, can I ask you, do you buy into the cultural narrative? Do you listen to the world instead of listening to Christ? Do you think about how you can sacrifice giving to God's people before how you can sacrifice yourself? In Christ, we are free to make sacrifices for the sake of generosity. And, but what's the goal? What is the goal of all of this? Here we are at point D. Looking at verses 10 to 15, we see that there is a purpose to this. We don't just give because Paul told us to, even though that's not a bad reason, right, from God's word. We see in verses 10 to 15 that Paul wants the Corinthians to give for the sake of their brothers and sisters in need. There are people around you who are in desperate need. Even people in this church who may not be able to pay the next bill that they have, who may struggle to consider how they're going to get the next meal on their table. But in verses 10 to 12, we see that Paul wants the Corinthians to give and follow through with their word. See, Paul wants the Corinthians in 10 to 12 to follow through, to do what they said they would do to act as they said they would act. After all, actions speak louder than words, and the actions of love confirm the words of love. And in verses 13 to 15, what we see here is that Paul wants equality, fairness, and rightness. Now, let's be very clear about this. Paul is not saying equity. 
He's not saying every single person needs to have the same amount of money. That's not what he's saying. You see, to do that would be to impose some kind of economic agenda here that is not Christian. But what is he saying? Well, verse 14 is the key. He says, right now, you have a loss, and so you can give to those who are in need. And one day, those who are in need might have a lot, and so they might be able to serve you when you are in need. That's the equality he's looking at. That God's people are to be a mutually interdependent community of support for one another. That no one ever needs to go hungry. No one ever needs to go in need. Let me ask you, are you aware of the needs of those around you? Have you ever thought about those who are struggling to pay things off, to get through uni, to even travel to church because of lack of a car or, or you know, struggles with, with the public transport finances? Have you thought about how you can aim for equality amongst God's people, serving each other? That's the standard that we have in front of us. As a family, we support each other. But that's the overarching point one. I hope you see that there is a biblical basis for giving, and the heart of giving is found in how Jesus gave himself for us. But what I want to do now in in point two is I want to do a bit of a whirlwind tour through the Bible, specifically the New Testament, because the Bible does have a financial model for Christians. I don't know how many of us have ever thought about this, but as university students or even as workers now, I want to encourage you to consider how in the present and in the future, you can set up your life and your giving and your money to follow what God's word has to say. Now, while we can debate the pros and cons of every economic system from capitalism to socialism and communism, we can do that after. I'm learning a bit about that right now. As uh, I was telling Tim yesterday, I've been reading a book on economics recently. But that's not what I have in view here. This is specifically for God's people, not necessarily a government economic structure. And so, let's take a look at what God's Word has to say. I've got these passages on the screen uh, to make it a bit easier for us as we take a look. So, part A... We must be willing to work. We must be willing to work. Would you read with me, please, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Sorry, I'm just going to turn this screen around. We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Christians are instructed to be willing to work and to do something productive and useful with their hands. Note that this is not a command against those who cannot work because of health or disability or illness. This is saying that you must be willing to work. You must be willing to work. This is a rebuke against those who can work but are unwilling to. And while we don't have enough time to go into this in detail, I understand that you recently had a, a, a night, a topical night on work, and so this may have come up, but Christians don't equate work with what you are being paid and taxed for. For example, caring for children is real work. 
Whereas operating a casino is not work, because under God's system and God's world, work is anything that contributes to human flourishing. If you are a hitman, that does not count as work, at least good work, Christianly speaking. If you are a drug dealer, that doesn't count as good work. So work isn't necessarily what you are paid for. Work is anything that you do that contributes to human flourishing. And this is why even if you retire one day from paid work, you can continue to do the work in your life. Specifically, the work of the Lord in your life. And students fulfill this category. As long as your study is with a view towards being a godly worker in the future, you are studying right now so that you can be a better worker. You work because you studied in the past how to do this job. Here's the point. Part A, we must be willing to work. And so, if you're thinking, thinking about what job you might do in the future, have a think about whether your job will contribute to human flourishing or not. But also remember that work isn't just what you're paid for. Part A, we must be willing to work. But then part B, we must provide for our family. We're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I have these two passages on the screen for us. Read with me from verse 8, please. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And verse 16. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. What do we see here? Well, from 1 Timothy chapter 5, these two verses, we see that Christians are commanded, commanded, by the way, sorry, I have to make this clear. You notice on your outline that not everything says we must, we must, okay? There are only a few commands that are explicitly, you must do this. The rest are descriptions of what Christians do. But this is an example of something that we are commanded to do. We are commanded to take care of our own families, first in our own households, but then also for our other relatives as well. And in 1 Timothy 5, this is specifically applied to widows in the church, where the first point of help should be biological families instead of church. So I take this to mean that Christians do have a duty to their biological families, to take care of them, to make sure that none of them are in need. Now, let's be clear about this. Many of us here are guilty of saying, no, my parents came to Australia to make my life better, to give me a future, to give me a good education. And once I grow up and I leave, you're on your own. Work it out yourself. Oh, I have relatives in Hong Kong. I don't need to worry about them. They can deal with themselves. They're not my problem. That's not Christian. Scriptures say that we are to care for our own families. But on the other hand, in a room full of people from an Asian background, I also have to say that some of us here might already be giving to our families because they expect it. Maybe when you started working, your parents said, you need to start giving us some money because we cared for you and we, we raised you. You need to give us money now. Can I also say that this is not what the Bible has to say? That actually might be a form of worldliness. And can I encourage some of you 
you might be giving to your parents to question it. Because if your parents aren't in need, then you don't need to give them money. In fact, some of you might need to push back against that Confucian notion. Because giving them hundreds of dollars a week is taking away from how much you can give to church. More than an Asian thing, this is a Christian thing. We are to provide for the needs of our family, not the wants of our family. It's not like if uh, you know your mum or your auntie or a cousin comes up to you and says, you need to buy me a car, because the Bible says you must take care of your biological family. That's not what this has in mind. But we are called to care for the needs of our biological family, immediate and extended. But thirdly, C, we should support the work of our local church. Have a read of verse 17 from the same chapter with me. The elders who direct the affairs of the church, well, are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. In our local congregations, Christians are commanded to support the work that is going on, especially those who are the elders, the teaching elders of the church. And we do this because they're teachers of God's word. They are proclaiming the gospel. They are nurturing us. They are encouraging us in the faith. And so we should give special attention to how we give to church. In this case, to Southwest Evangelical Church. And so let me ask you, have you been a member of this church for a while, but never ever thought about giving? Because if so, you are in sin. You are in sin. Simple. Hard, but simple. Because we are commanded to support the work of those around us in our local church. And you may be a student, and you may not have a lot of money to give. And you might say, look, I'm making like $60 a week as it is. Good. Start with $1 a week. Start giving regularly. Because giving is like a muscle. And if you start giving now, when you, you know, get a better job and you start working, you'll be able to give even more. You won't have to put in the bank details. You can just go, all right, just change the amount that you're giving. You can start giving now because Christians are called to support the work of our local church. It is a command. But now we go from part D onwards to descriptions of how Christians use money in the New Testament. I want to be clear that none of these are commands, but they are descriptions. They are descriptions of how Christians use their money. And so, would you come with me to D? Christians serve the needs of other Christians in the grace of giving. This one's not a long point because we've already looked at this passage, but basically I do want to make clear that God's financial model includes Christians mutually supporting one another. Mutually supporting our sisters and brothers in the local church and the wider community. And so, do you know people around you who are in need? Maybe someone's car has broken down recently, and, and their car, uh, you know, the, the mechanic bill is extremely high, and they're a student and they can't pay it. Could you help them out? Could you generously give for that purpose? I didn't plan on saying this, but I think that it's worth saying at this point that Giving is not the same thing as lending. Giving means not expecting that it will come back. And as a side note, 
there is a strong biblical case to be made that interest on giving is sin as well. If you give and you want interest on your giving, that's sinful according to the Old Testament. But we can chat a bit more about that later. Because giving, everyone, is not to make a profit. We don't make a profit off the needs of our brothers and sisters. We love them. We draw near to them. We give because we have so much already. We give out of love. But that's point D. Point E. Christians are concerned about the poor, the fatherless, the oppressed, and the widows. You see, throughout the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, we see the concern of God for the poor, the fatherless, the oppressed, and the widows. If you ever read the prophetic writings to Israel, God's God judges them for ignoring these people. God judges them for abusing these people. It is in God's character to care for those who are in need, those who can't help themselves. And we see this in the New Testament as well. For example, take a look at James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. One of the ways that Christians honor God is by giving to those who are marginalized in our society. And I love that as a church, you support compassion. I think it's so fantastic that you as a church support compassion and you give. There are also other ministries you can support, like Anglicare. Right? Anglican, and I don't just say this because I go to an Anglican church, by the way. I'm not being paid by Anglicare to say this, right? But, you know, institutions like Anglicare that provide food services, that's, that help refugees, that also um, help relocate people who are under abuse and who have adoption services as well. And so let me think, though, that's corporately, but individually, individually, as a Christian, how might you be expressing this concern? How can you reflect God's heart? For those who can't help themselves. Have you ever thought about it before? Or do you say, no, they just need to take care of themselves. Individual responsibility is the only thing that matters. That sounds like a lot of sense in our world. Maybe, shall we say, one political wing of our world, but it's not Christian. Sixthly, then, F. And sorry, there's a bit of a typo here. It should say Christians are eager, not God's people, just to follow along with what the other points are saying. But Christians are eager to financially support the spread of the gospel. You see, throughout the New Testament, we see that God's people are eager to financially support the preaching of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 4, the, the, the Christians gave to Paul. And if you take a look at Luke chapter 6, you'll realize that Jesus' entire public ministry was bankrolled by rich women. Christian ministry has always been supported by the riches of Christians who support the work of the gospel. And so this is why we give to parachurch ministries. This is why we support university groups. This is why we support Bible translation projects. As Christians, we want to give to support the work of the gospel. It's why we support ministry apprentices as well. Some of you might know some ministry apprentices. There is a basis for this as well. But finally then, finally, in God's financial model, we're here at point G. Read with me from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing should be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. You see, God graciously gives us a beautiful world to live in. We're so thankful for the world we live in. 
And we do have the description here, the mandate, the privilege that we can use our money to enjoy God's good creation. We can eat, we can travel, we can see good things, we can buy entertainment and, 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 and you know, rest and receive leisure. God has abundantly, abundantly given us good things. But let's just make this clear that we need to remember the giver and not just the gift. We have to thank God for what we have received. That's what verse 4 is trying to say here, right? Don't just receive it, but receive it with thanksgiving. And so there you have it. Seven principles that we get from Scripture about God's financial model. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, does your weekly spending habits reflect this? Or are you just heavy on the G? Oh, sorry. That wasn't for dramatic effect. Are you just heavy on the G? When finances become tight, do you sacrifice A to F, excuse me, A to, all right, okay, I'm going to get these letters wrong now. What's the sixth letter? F. That's right, A to F. That's right. Do you sacrifice A to F? Or maybe you don't sacrifice A to F because you've got to, you got to work, right? You sacrifice B to F. But A and G, they stay. That's no sacrifice. And that's not love. If you're a follower of Jesus, how does your weekly spending habit reflect your Christianity? Or are you just like your non-Christian co-worker? Now, let's finish up then. Point three, a core to the rich. I want to be very clear. Loving others involves a lot more than generosity with money. Absolutely, it involves a lot more than generosity with money. And this is hard, isn't it? It's really hard. I know that for Viv and I, we've been uh, trying to think about our finances and, and also with a view towards the future. And there are so many different things that we want to do, but we've got to work out you know, how we're going to do it. Generosity involves a lot more than giving our money. But I want to make this clear as well. It's certainly not less than giving with our money. All money is God's money, and we need to steward what he has given us. Wealth carries power in this world for good reason, because money is power. We're going to see a bit more about this in our workshop later. And throughout the Old Testament, wealth is given to those who are righteous, and yet we see that when God's people grow rich, their hearts are turned away from him. This is where we have Proverbs chapter 30, the wisdom of God telling us in verse 8, keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Generosity with our money is a prime indication of whether or not our hearts have been captured by the grace of God about whether or not we find Jesus to be our greatest treasure or food to be our greatest treasure, whether we honor our brothers and sisters or whether we honor our parents as God with their Confucian expectations. As we see with the Macedonian Christians, excelling in the grace of giving when it costs us is sacrifice. And remember that it's not even about how much you give. Remember the widow that Jesus saw giving two copper coins. She didn't even give that much. And yet Jesus commended her because she gave. 
Demographically, most of us in this room are either rich right now or will be rich in the future. We just don't feel it because we live in Sydney. In the world, if you make more than $13,000 a year, you are in the top 80%. That statistic is a bit old now. It might be different. If you make more than $13,000 a year, you are in the top 80%. Sorry, you make more than the 80%. So you're in the top 20%. Got to get my stats right. How are you going to generously give? If not now as a worker, then in the future as a uni- uh, when you graduate from university. How are you going to give your life and your money? I finish with this. When I was in first year uni, I went on an EU summer mission. It's kind of like NTE mission. And so I went to a place called Mascot, which is near Botany Bay. Uh, and I was at Botany Bay Community Church. And there was a, an older man there who I stayed with. His name's Keith. Keith's a funny guy. He, um, he was a Qantas flight attendant for many years and he could talk. Oh my goodness, this guy could talk, right? Uh, he, was, uh, he, he was an older gentleman and he, he worked hard. He worked hard for over 40 years as a Qantas flight attendant while his wife, Frida, raised their two sons as a stay-at-home mom. One of the nights, Keith took me aside after dinner and he said to me, James, I want to tell you a bit about my story. And in my mind, I was thinking, haven't you already told me your story like five or six times? Like, <laughs> you talk so much, right? I thought I knew everything already. But he sat down with me and he said, James, I want to tell you a bit about the boys I took in. I said, what are you talking about? Because you see, Keith and Frida, they had two biological sons. But in their time, they adopted eight boys off the street. Keith knew that in his area, there were a number of homeless boys. In fact, he estimated at the time that at any given time in Sydney, there are about 10,000 homeless children on the streets. And he had always told his sons, if you ever see a homeless boy, you can bring them home. No questions asked. There will be a bed for them. And he said to me, James, it really pains me to think about how Christians would never even think about doing this. And I'm not saying that you have to do it, James. No, I was 18 at the time. I I had no, sorry, 17 at the time. I had no idea about this even being a thing. He said to me, James, if you would even consider taking in one boy, one child, it would make a world of difference. Of those eight boys, only three became Christian in the end. Right? He was a Christian man. Three became Christian, but he never regretted taking them in. Does that sound too extreme? Does that sound too crazy? Because i got to say, when I think about my own life, and I think about the sacrifices of Christians throughout the ages, that's a very small price to pay, bringing in these boys and taking care of them. Does it sound too radical? Oh, it doesn't have to, because friends, we are rich in Christ. And so can I encourage you to give, to be generous with your money, because we are free to do so. That's what love looks like. Can you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for how you have abundantly blessed us with riches beyond our wildest imagination in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would cling more to Christ than we do to money. And we pray that you give us a heart that longs to be generous. We thank you so much 
for a community of Christians with whom we can support each other. And we pray that we would spur each other on to hold nothing back. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.